everyone, and welcome to One Great History Presents One Great 150, a podcast all about uh, Winnipeg's 150th birthday. Yeah. I'm uh, your host, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer, Nick. How's it going? He's behind the camera. Yeah, you don't get to see his face, just ours. No. <laughs> and uh, this is episode seven, which is all about Helen Armstrong. Yeah. So we're coming in off of, obviously, Winnie the Pooh and talking about the impacts of the war overseas and Canada's influence on that. But with all of that going on in Europe, Winnipeg is going through a lot of pretty, like, rapid and radical social changes in the span of just, like, four years. Right. The 1914 to 1918 period is, like, pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. We're coming off of, like, the ending of the Red Light District. Prohibition is around the same time. Uh, Women get the right to vote in 1916. So, like... Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've got, like, four episodes that are kind of right around this time. As much as we've tried to kind of cover a lengthy period of time. A lot of it comes back to this sort of little bit. Yeah of winnipeg history so there's all of that going on um most of it's coming from years of like prior issues of course um there's also the manitoba legislature construction or ledge construction scandal which is like kind of sort of ramping up uh the winnipeg aqueduct is under construction and yeah women's uh, suffrage which we have an episode on if you want to listen to that Mm -hmm. um so by 1916 a lot of this stuff has kind of happened and winnipeg is now grappling with the ramifications of like there's now no liquor right some women can now vote yeah. something fishy is going on at the ledge <laughs> we're making pamphlets about it <laughs> yeah. and of course the right to vote isn't the only issue that women are facing at the time because mm-hmm. not all women can vote yeah women also can't own property and more and more women are entering the workforce right especially with the war going on and men going overseas there's now a labor sort of vacancy that women are filling Right. And I guess like voting is a kind of long term way to change things. But in the short term, you might have more pressing concerns. Yes, exactly. So um, it's hard to find numbers for how many women are in the workforce at any given moment Mm -hmm. without like meticulously going through census records, which I did not have time to do. (laughs) But uh, in 1899, there were about 16% of the workforce was women and 70% of them were working in textiles and garment manufacturing specifically. That's really interesting. In like in Winnipeg? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of that seems to be because that was, like, still women's work, roughly, right? right? It's still, like, sort of the tailoring, homemaking skills they would have learned growing up. Right, it's sort of acceptable work in some yeah. ways. But um, women tended to work for less pain than men, pretty much across the board, mm. and in also unsafe and unsanitary conditions for bosses that weren't kind to them. Mm. And there isn't really a whole lot of, like, workplace safety <laughs> rules at the right. time, despite any attempt to get them. Um, they had been a, uh, a women's garment manufacturing union since the late 1890s. Okay, that's surprising. Which is pretty early. The issue is they had a really hard time pinning down members mm. for long term. Um, membership was pretty low, and the expectation for women after marriage was, of course, to leave the workplace and right. stay at the house. So that contributed to some of it, is that if you were, say, like 16, you'd go and work, you would get married mm-hmm. at, say, 18 or 19, and then your husband might expect you to stop working. Right. That wasn't an option for everyone, but that contributed to some women leaving. Other mm-hmm. women just took different jobs. And then you would just kind of bounce around sometimes if work wasn't going well. Sure. But as we hit sort of the 1900s, uh, there's now a retail market in Winnipeg. Because mm. there's department stores. Right. It's not just like a bunch of like dirty men on the frontier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We now have not quite like the big Bay store that we see in the 1920s, mm-hmm. but there's like the Hudson's Bay, there's Eaton's. 
there's a handful of other smaller department stores like Woolworths that women mm-hmm. can now work at as sales clerks. Mm. So it's less like labor intensive in that you're not like using your hands as much, but it's still a lot of hours on your feet dealing with the public. And this becomes a sort of separate workplace issue. Right. Um, there's some also pressure for women at these stores to maintain a certain image as being like a respectable sales girl. Oh, yeah. So to like stay a certain weight was one complaint at some workplaces to dress a certain way, whether or not the weather was friendly enough for it. Mm-hmm. And... There is actually a specific complaint that um, the vestibules vestibules in department stores weren't deep enough. What does that mean? So, like, the entryway to a department store, like, when you walk into the bay, there's kind of that, like, entrance room. Yeah. The complaint, according to a uh, Women's Club of Winnipeg study, is that they weren't deep enough. Okay. So, like, they weren't wide. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, essentially, what they're there to do is to warm up cold air before it gets into the oh, store, right? I see. So, you're... so it's kind of like a transitional period for air. Right. But a ton of cold air is still Coming straight through. into the store, mm. which means that um, women were getting sick. Right. The um, estimated you a 12-foot entrance in most of Winnipeg are about four feet. Okay. But yeah. when you think about the size of, like, any, like, old storefront in Winnipeg, yeah. 12 feet is a lot of That room. is a lot of room. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess the Bay and, like, maybe some other big department stores could do it, but yeah. most of the smaller ones, not so much. Exactly. Yeah. So this is sort of the state of uh, labor prior to World War One in Winnipeg, sure. where there's, like, some new workplace opportunities. There's not that much going on still in the way of, like, safety or pay. Mm. And then when World War One breaks out, things effectively get much, much worse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So there's men leaving for war, women are entering the workforce, and wars com- cost money. Yeah. So goods begin to cost more. Mm. And wages do not go up to match. Gee, I, I feel like that sounds familiar. <laughs> do you think uh, anyone else has lived through this exact scenario huh. before? <laughs> Interesting. I sure hope that never happens again. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So I couldn't pin down the exact number because, I mean, economic history is not like my thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but generally it was somewhere, uh, rising somewhere between 50 to 60% over the course of the war, which is like a pretty okay. steep increase that is in the pretty... price of goods. Yeah. That's pretty significant. So for the first two years, things kind of like rise slowly, but not a whole lot is Mm -hmm. happening. And then things really start to bubble over by 1916. 1916 is a pretty big year, seemingly, for like labor conflicts as workers tend to like reach their boiling over point. Yeah. Um, I made a list of a bunch of the places that went on strike between 1916 and 1917. Uh, Crescent Creamery. Oh, the Crescent Creamery. Of course. We must have talked about that in the milk episode. The milk strike. Yeah, the milk strike. Of course. And, of course, milk always comes back into it. Uh, the Teamsters Union, the telephone operators, the Great Northwest Telegraph operators, the Tribune Press Room, uh, Winnipeg Electrical Workers, North End Bakery Owners and Delivery Drivers hmm. as a whole unit. Uh, the bakery ha- Owners. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I don't really know. I couldn't find too, too much about it. It was mostly, yeah. like, sporadic reports on, like, oh, the bakery owners have resolved something. Sure. Um, Haddon and Company Tailors. Garment workers at the Stobert Company, Canadian Pacific Railway employees, uh, soldiers at the military hospital in Tuxedo, uh, railway workers in Tuxedo, streetcar employees. Um, is it Oglive or Oglivy? For, I don't know. Anyway, um, some stationary workers in the city. Okay. Moving picture operators. the Oglivy. Oglivy. I have not heard of this. Interesting. Uh, and then moving picture operators, so the movie theaters closed down briefly. And then uh, workers at the Woolworth department store. Okay. That is 16 strikes. That's a lot. And Wait, that's probably not... In and, and in what period of time 1916 again? to in, 1917. Oh, wow. Okay. So, like, mostly these happen... They seem to be in spring, mostly, is when a lot okay. of the strikes tend to start and end for whatever reason. Hmm. But there's probably more I missed also. 
I'm sure. So I'm sure there were ones that didn't get as much press coverage. Exactly. Or, yeah. or like smaller unions or like they were over in just like a couple of hours. Yeah. So like there are a lot of strikes going on. It's a busy right. time for labor organizers. There's lots more focus on unionizing workplaces that hadn't really been there before. Mm-hmm. And it's also around this time that we see Helen Armstrong kind of step into the scene cool. in full. Yeah. So I have to give some credit here to Paula Kelly. She's done most of the work in researching Helen Armstrong. Okay. She did uh, the documentary, the, the Notorious Mrs. Armstrong. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Which is so good. It's really good. Uh, you have to go to the U of W library to get it, but it's worth the watch. I think we handed it out in a bunch of strike kits when I worked at the museum. So a bunch so of schools have it. So if you get a strike kit <laughs> or go to a school, maybe they have one. Yeah. They might have one along with a bunch of batons that I don't know why we were giving them to children. <laughs> That's we my were. favorite thing is like we're gonna give weapons to small children to talk about the strike we used to hand them around during field trips and i always had to be like okay i'm gonna hand this around please don't hit each other (laughs) and did they listen to you mostly the second anyone was like haha i was like no okay that one's going back (laughs) you don't get to have fun anymore next artifact (laughs) yeah that makes sense yeah so yeah paula kelly's done most of the work for researching helen armstrong in her history and until Kelly's work, Helen Armstrong was kind of like a footnote. People didn't know too, too much about her. Mm-hmm. So Helen Armstrong had been in Winnipeg with her family since 1905 or so. She'd moved here with her husband, George, and their four kids. But raising a family kind of kept her at home for most of those years. Okay. That was hard work and there were many yeah. of them. Oh, yeah. Did they have like a ton of kids? Uh, well, four. Okay. It's enough. <laughs> I said four. Oh, they also all got sick at the same time at one point. Mm. So like her hands were pretty full right. until they'd gotten old enough to fend for themselves. Yeah. So George, on the other hand, was a pretty prominent socialist in Winnipeg. He was a carpenter. He was involved in the union. Okay. He was pretty active politically as well. So the first time Helen kind of makes it into the public eye is when she's campaigning alongside George. Mm-hmm. He is running for in the provincial election, and she's by his side in Market Square. And when people start to heckle George, she tells them off. Apparently. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. Pretty ferociously. <laughs> the thing is with Helen, though, she had organizing pretty much like built into her. Her father was a prominent socialist in Toronto. He was a tailor. Okay. Yeah. And he would hold labor meetings in the tailor shop when she was working with him. So she like hmm. grew up around union meetings essentially. Right. So she like grew up and met another socialist and was like She followed him to Butte, Montana and they got married there. Oh. I know. They're very sweet. So after they get married, they come to Winnipeg with their family and they settle down and then Helen starts helping her husband campaign, but it's 1917 when Helen Armstrong really sort of starts appearing more and more in the public eye and campaigning more Mm -hmm. for her own interests, essentially. So in Winnipeg, we have the Women's Labor League, and Armstrong's first order of business seems to have been bringing that back. Okay. Like it had kind of like fizzled away? Yeah, basically. Uh, The Women's Labor League had initially run from 1909 until 1911. Mm -hmm. It was... uh, pretty small and it was also pretty distant from the concerns of like actual working women oh yeah so the mandate from the 1909 group is to help members understand issues affecting the industrial struggle for existence to inspire women Hmm. hold on no that's right sorry (laughs) i'll start that over again uh this is the group's mandate from um the 1910 or 1909 group To help members understand issues affecting the industrial struggle for existence, to inspire women to advance the cause of train unionism in the labor movement, to work for the objective of equal pay for equal work, to abolish the evils that promote women's degradation, to work for women's suffrage, and encourage women to become more knowledgeable about household management, health, nutrition, maternity, and childbearing. Interesting. It's pretty broad. It's very broad. It's not very specific. No. And some of it, it seems outside of labor as well. Like the stuff about like the degradation of women women sounds like kind of 
I don't know, red light district stuff or like yeah. prohibition stuff, maybe. Yeah. It seems like they're going to try and push for some other like social legislation yeah. as opposed to just Which like... Which makes sense yeah. for women, right? Yeah. Those things intersect with their work and... So the leader of this group was Ada Murr, who is a very like fascinating historical figure. She was um, staunchly anti-eugenics. Okay. Like one of probably the most staunchly <laughs> nice. anti- I mean, good good job at this time. Yeah. But she's also opposed to uh, vaccines and modern medicine oh, and the okay. pasteurization of milk. Okay. Well, a bit of a mixed bag there. Yeah. <laughs> she's interesting. Yeah. But she's in terms of the group at first and- I think probably because of their, like, lofty ideas, they didn't get super far. And then obviously, mm. like, she moves away to Vancouver with her husband and they stay out there. Okay. So when Armstrong comes onto the scene, her goal is to bring that back with some updated goals. Right. The uh, 1917 Women's Labor League, which is founded in March of 1917, has uh, the following mandate. To improve the lives of working women through unionization, the passage of protective legislation, to foster cooperation among working women, to educate the public about the labor movement, to provide assistance to wage earners trying to resolve their industrial difficulties, and to research and make available accurate information leading to legislation governing the wages and working conditions of women and children. Okay, so that is a lot more specific. Now, like, it's still pretty broad in terms of, like, it's about women's labor. Yeah, but it's sort of funneled in on one specific purpose, whereas I feel like the old one was, like, Anything involving women, we are involved in and we will take care of. Right. And this is kind of like women's work and wages and like legislation pertaining to that. I also think it's interesting that they mention uh, working conditions of children specifically in this when like that hadn't been mentioned at all in the previous one because children were still involved in the workforce. Right. I guess who else is going to advocate for working children? Exactly. So like it's a bit more practical in terms Mm -hmm. of like it's doable to try and like provide more information on unions. Sure. As opposed to like stop the evils that promote women's degradation that's a bit harder to be like we tangibly did that right oh and it's interesting the thing about like working towards like legislation as well i wonder if that was influenced by like the success of the women's suffrage movement that they were like oh like going into like the legislature and lobbying for something can work can work yeah we just like go and yell at politicians enough sometimes (laughs) maybe they'll listen to us yeah so Um, Armstrong was pretty vocal about her aims and pretty persuasive. She writes uh, in an open letter to the Winnipeg uh, Telegram, Girls have got to learn to fight as men have had to do for the right to live, and we women of the Labor League are spending all of our spare time in trying to get the girls to organize as the master class have done to protect their own interests. Okay. So she's, like, really dedicated to getting women's unions founded. She, um... Leads the group meetings, which happen twice a month at the James Street Labor Temple, and we don't know much about those meetings. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, pretty much everything at the James Street Labor Temple, nothing's left. There are Great. no records. <laughs> There's, like, no photos of the building. Hmm, yeah. Like, that is just kind of such a weird black hole of information. It's kind of nuts that we, yeah. Everything is gone. Because actually, like, often we have, and I'll talk about in this, my, in this in my next episode, often we have a lot of records on labor history. Yeah, because they take a lot of notes. They take a lot of notes. <laughs> they have a lot of meeting minutes. It's wild that this one building seems to have just, like, I'm assuming through, like, the raid during the strike and whatever else, things yeah, maybe, kind of eh? fell apart. So we don't really know what's going on at the labor temple meetings unless it makes the paper, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, what we do know from this is that Helen Armstrong had become president of the retail clerks union. Okay. And that was she like working in retail at the time? No. So was... Helen Armstrong had never really like she'd worked as a tailor with her father, right. and then when she got married, she became She's a like stay at home mom, career organizer. Essentially. Yeah, essentially, yeah. yeah. And then once she leaves the house, she becomes yeah, yeah. a career organizer, hmm. and she seems to be pretty good at it. Okay. Is the thing. Yeah. So uh, when 
they sort of make the news big time in 1917 is when the women at the Woolworth department store go on strike. Right. This is 50 workers walking out um, on May 25th, 1917. The women who were being paid $6 a week were asking for um, union recognition and $8 a week. Oh, that's so bad. I know. It's not even like, it's not even that much of an ask. No, it's really not. So the general consensus among experts at the time is that the minimum a woman, uh, minimum wage a woman could survive on in 1916 was $9 a week. Okay. And that's just like, that's like bare minimum that's the for bare minimum. your room and board. That's basically. $6 would cover room and board. Okay. And that's about it. And the rest is for food. <laughs> for food and like surviving and like transport yeah. costs. Like you're taking the streetcar to work or you're walking. Yeah. There's no cars. Yeah. So there was actually a pretty high public support for the strike. Like nearby businesses were on board with it and everything. Mm-hmm. So Eaton's was sending the strike organizers uh, lunch coupons. Oh, really? But that's fascinating. Consider Eaton's benefits is if that Woolworth right? is on strike. Oh my I god! Don't, it was never made explicit. That's why it was happening. Why aren't workers doing this more? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's interesting. Uh, the Boston Lunch Cafe offers ten cent meals for striking women. Huh. That one seems a little less like obvious that one's a little more like like worker solidarity or whatever. <laughs> Eaton's, but... I think, was genuinely like, ah, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to like cross the picket line. We're not striking. Yeah, come Go shop on. at Eaton's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they also have uh, the women who are on the picket line have like days of cho- uh, like chocolate and dainty trays sent to them. Oh, yeah. And sympathetic soldiers actually begin marching around in the store to support them. Okay, cool. So like picket lines tend to be outside of the place of yeah sure <laughs> and then there's just some soldiers puttering around inside in support <laughs> and then um helen armstrong and a woman named mrs watts who was also organizing the strike approach the soldiers and are like maybe you should go out there this might be a little too scary <laughs> like, are they just like scaring all the store managers and also it might lose the girls some public sympathy if they're mm. intimidating customers okay yeah like a lot of this is kind of a public perception game to some extent right right yeah so the soldiers had to stay outside of the yeah, store. Okay. And not all of the strikers were women at, are living at home. Some of them would live with their parents until they got married. Sure. Others, for one reason or another, did not do that. So if you were a woman living in like a boarding house, Armstrong and the Labor League were organizing housing support funds. Oh, cool. Or in some cases, just like finding housing for you before the strike. Mm-hmm. They would take in public uh, contributions and other unions paid about $150 relatively quickly. To help support the striking funds. And they tried to raise more through, like, other public donation means. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a... This is less related to this specific strike, but there is a Helen Armstrong collection at the archives. Yeah. And there's a picture of her on the picket line with the women holding, like, a sign. And someone wrote above the photo, I wish I were here. Aw. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's very sweet. Yeah. But yeah, there's pictures of Helen Armstrong. I wonder, wonder who wrote that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It may have been, I think Gertrude Richardson had written some stuff on her oh, at the time. okay. Interesting. So like, it could have been her, but yeah. maybe someone else was just like, man, Helen was cool. I <laughs> yeah. wish I was there. <laughs> who knows? So in response, Woolworths does offer up their pay to $8 a week. Okay. But mm-hmm. they won't recognize the union. Of course. Classic. <laughs> So uh, the Voice, which is the labor newspaper in Winnipeg at the time, is quick to point out if Woolsworth accepts the $8 wage but doesn't recognize the union, what they're going to do is fire the women when the strike ends. Oh, yeah. That's what's probably going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Woolsworth also starts hiring strike breakers or scabs to work yeah. at the store in the meantime. Though um, the two women that they did manage to hire were uh, run ragged by the end of the day. <laughs> and then 
when management tried to bring in new workers, these strikers uh, chased them off, like literally yelling yeah. scabs at them until, <laughs> until they ran away. Oh, it'd be so embarrassing to be called a scab. Right? Yeah. Not, not great. No. So this culminates in a fight in front of the store between uh, seven women and some scabs. Really? Yes. There is a, like an actual scuffle outside. Wow. I don't know how severe it actually was. It's just like there was kind of a tussle. Yeah. Um, the striking women are arrested. Oh, wow. Uh, public support is still actually pretty strong, so the charges are dropped pretty quickly. Yeah. Though, uh, it causes a whole bunch of other problems in the long term. Right. I um, mean, women don't often get into, like, public brawls. Like, I, I don't know. Helen Armstrong that's... on the well... other hand. <laughs> yeah. So, the wage increase doesn't convince women to end the strike. The hmm. fight outside doesn't convince women to end the strike. And people are still on their side. After the fight, they get $300 in public donations. Wow. So, like, people are still on their side. People are like, we we love these brawling women. <laughs> <laughs> we want them to get paid. Yeah. At least a bit more than room and board. Right. Um, in response, what Woolworths does is threaten to file a $25,000 damages suit against the striking <gasps> women. Wow. And this suit essentially halts the picketing process on June 1st. Oh, uh, gosh. Several women are actually arrested shortly afterwards. Uh, they arrest... Uh, they're not arrested, but there's 39 women named in the suit, including Armstrong. Okay. So basically every woman on strike is named as, like, a defendant. Right. In this lawsuit. Crazy. Yeah. The uh, organizer of the retail clerks union, W.H. Hoop, states that the union would back the women to the last ditch. Good. Okay. Yeah. And a judge agrees to the picketing injunction. So, like, a judge says, yes, the picketing can stop. But the judge also argues that finding the women isn't going to help and will look really, really bad for Woolworths. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the finding never happens. Okay. But the injunction stops being able to pick it outside of the store. Intr- well, yeah. So. That makes things tough. What do you do? I don't know. could pick it elsewhere, I guess. Yeah. Um, so hoop opts for a slightly different method of picketing that doesn't involve blockading the storefront oh okay he uh loads up a bunch of strikers into a car they yeah. hang signs on it and they drive up and down portage avenue oh. <laughs> so that seems to work they hold a big public meeting at the walker theater to talk about the strike and the ongoing minimum wage campaign because there is still a push for minimum wage for women in manitoba right. that hasn't happened yet there's a whole like march starting at the labor temple that goes to the walker theater there's speeches and a band and then on June 19th, the Free Press prints an article titled Abandon All Hope. <laughs> a real oh, strong no. opener. Yeah. Uh, so the paper argues that the hope of an actual resolution is just, like, gone. Oh, wow. By June 28th, there were 900 people in Winnipeg on strike. Wow. So not just at Woolworths, just, yeah. like, on the whole, there's 900 people striking yeah. in different workplaces. That's crazy. And though uh, Woolworths women had started finding other jobs... And the store began replacing them. So, like, after a month or two of being on strike, there's not a lot of strike pay. The women just go elsewhere. That's right, yeah. So, what happens is the $2 raise sticks and sticks around. Okay. So, that's, like, a success. But these women all, like, move on. There's no, like, successful resolution. It just kind of peters out. Right. But Armstrong makes a pretty good name for herself as someone who's, like, good at organizing picket lines. Right. And, like, protesting scabs. Mm-hmm. And supporting women in these efforts. And the injunction that happens uh, with Woolworths is a recurring pattern in Winnipeg across the 1910s. Like, it is a notable issue that if you are striking outside of a business, the workplace will then try and raise an injunction against you, meaning you have to stop. And this raises a bunch of concerns with the Trades and Labor Council in Winnipeg who point out, like, well, if employers can just stop a strike, what's the point of striking? Right. (laughs) If we can't do a picket line, why are we bothering at all? 
So this happens with a uh, butcher's strike in Winnipeg as well. And this is kind of where we start to get into something like the One Big Union. Okay, nice. Uh, Alex, do you want to quickly explain what the One Big Union is? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> really. It's One Big Union. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea was that instead of having, like, unions at this time were very kind of, like, occupation and even, like, skill-based. So even, yeah. like, within... Um, you know, one, like, whatever, textile workers. You'd or, have, like, like, the railway. Right. Yeah, we'll talk a lot about that next time <laughs> yes. about the railway. Um, yeah, so you have, like, the porter's union, which is separate from other railway workers. Or you'd have, like, you know, on the cutting room floor yeah. has different a different union than other yeah. people. So the idea was that instead you would have literally one big union and in that way um, be more effective. That also cuts on the fight for union recognition at the workplace, which is, like, often That's the big true. sticking point in, like, a 1910 strike yeah. is, like, we want a higher wage, but also please recognize our union, because yeah. if you do that, then we actually have some, like, legal protections. Yeah. You can't prevent us from picketing. And just, you know, strengthen numbers, right? Exactly, It's, it's yeah. a fairly kind of simple logic in that Exactly, way. yeah. So, the one big union is kind of being pushed around a little bit at this point in time, but it's not really taken off in 1917, yeah. but, like, it's out of this kind of issue of workplaces not recognizing individual unions. Yeah. And also around this time, we have a group of concerned uh, businessmen who started thinking about forming something called a Winnipeg Citizen Alliance Uh-oh. based on a similar group in Minneapolis. And uh, it's dedicated this to... also feels like foreshadowing. Oh, it is. <laughs> All of the 1910s is foreshadowing for 1919 yeah. in a lot of ways. So um, they're essentially dedicated to shutting down organized labor. They call it correcting abuses brought on by organized labor. Okay. Huh. But they won't really get fully formed for a year or so. They're yeah. just kind of like, the idea's kicked around with 900 people on strike. Something's gotta be done right. about these people wanting fair wages. What what could we do about that, Sabrina? Interestingly, maybe pay them. Huh. Though, like, suggesting this in 1910s, <laughs> Winnipeg is getting you nowhere. You're immediately arrested for sedition. <laughs> Basically. So yeah, minimum wage is genuinely a huge fight for Helen Armstrong in the yeah. 1910s as well. She is a pretty big proponent of paying women a standardized living wage. <laughs> Wild. Uh, so the strike at Woolworths obviously comes down to living wages as well. Mm -hmm. They just want to be paid enough to survive. And Armstrong really, really campaigns for it across the 19 or late 1910s. Um, there's not a government-mandated minimum wage the way we might see today, but mm -hmm. some industry set something like it. Okay. So, like, a carpenter's, like, group would say, like, the minimum wage for a carpenter in the city is this. Right. But that is for specialized, like, training. So, by March of 1919, there's some push on the minimum wage front. Like, they're actually making some good progress. Mm -hmm. There's two bills placed in front of the Law Amendments Committee for $10 a week minimum wage and $5 for women under 18. Okay. $5 is not... Close to 10. <laughs> no, I mean, the other thing that happens, like, some places have those kind of, like, separate minimum wages for young yeah. workers. And what happens then sometimes is that places only hire young workers. workers. Yep. Um, do you think these amendments being placed go over, does it go over well, do you think? Do people, are they excited? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a no. I'm getting a vibe of no. <laughs> no. No, they're not. Um, employers are not in favor. And they do Interesting. one of my favorite things that a company might try and do to okay. protest uh -oh. low wages, and they publish a budget. What? Okay. Like their own budget? Their own budget for what they think an employee of the company needs to survive. <gasps> oh my God. I thought you meant like their budget. You mean they're like, this is how employees should be living? Yes. Alex, I sent that to you earlier today. If you saw my email saying, don't open this yet. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately for you, I don't check my email. <laughs> So I sent you an email Okay. with wait. the budget. I want you to take a look at it first. All right, let's see. 
Oh, yeah. Don't open yet from Sabrina Janky. <laughs> okay. Nice to know you don't read my emails. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Should I read? Should I read some of this out? Yes. It's long. You don't have to read all of it. Okay. Um, for summer, we've got, um, so basically like a bunch of clothes. That seems to mostly, oh, okay, actually, this is time. <laughs> I was going to try to summarize, but then actually when I read it, the entire budget is only clothes. One pair of boots, one pair of shoes, three pair of hose, two vests, two corset covers. And this is literally just clothes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for summer, a total of $40 and 27 cents. Um, and then for winter, this is once again just clothes. Also, the only two seasons. <laughs> I I also don't think this is enough clothes. Ah, you're you're catching on to something. Cause like, yeah. So first of all, just the two seasons. But yeah, you get like one sweater. You got a, like probably enough nightgowns. It feels like <laughs> <laughs> women love to sleep. You know what? I always say it. One pair of rubbers. <laughs> that meant something else back then. <laughs> That's just boots. <laughs> um, yeah, so essentially this is just a bunch of clothes. And most of it is like, yeah, so like one one corset, one wool skirt, three blouses, one coat, one hat. Um, yeah, one pair of boots. Um, yeah, one one dress. I'm in the second season now. Oh, one best dress. So you can have two dresses. Only two, though, and one's nicer than the other. Yeah, no, but, like, clearly this is, I mean, like, problem number one, this is not. <laughs> this is only clothes. This is only clothes. Where, where, like, I need to live in a house. Uh, use that one skirt and you got a tent. <laughs> <laughs> and eat your hats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going on, like, a top to bottom diet. Yeah, we're going to start. <laughs> we're gonna a real, start. It's a sandwich. <laughs> The worst day is when you have to eat your corset. Um, A lot of bones. Yeah. No, like, I do understand that people didn't have as many pairs of clothes then. Like, right. We have, have like, an abundance. Yeah. yeah. We have an abundance of of cheap clothes now. Um, But certainly still you'd need more than two dresses, presumably. Especially, I don't imagine your employer would be very happy if you showed up, especially if you're in, like, a retail place wearing the same dress every day. So... Helen Armstrong is quick to point out a flaws in the budget. She writes her own, like, editorial to the paper being yeah. like, here's what's wrong with this. And she does ignore that um, housing and food are not a part of it. Just because, like, well, obviously. Like, I don't, like, yeah, I don't know. Is this just supposed to be a clothing budget? But even then, why is that what you're trying to budget for? I don't know. Is that, like, like an issue of the time? Like, women buy too many clothes and that's why they have no money? Like, to me, when I'm broke, which is a lot of the time, yeah, that's, that's a thing I cut out of the budget pretty Yeah, quick. then I'm like, I can just... Wear the clothes I have for a bit. Fix things up, yeah. thrift if I have to. But yeah, they're proposing that you only actually need $2 a week. Yeah. So basically everything else, Sabrina, that they're paying these women... It's frivolous. It's frivolous. <laughs> so what Armstrong has to say is, notice, one skirt only. Yeah. With present prices of wool, how long do you suppose a three ninety five skirt would last with every day's rough usage? If it were to get wet, suppose you should stay home from work for nothing else is provided for warm weather. That's true. And a ten dollar best dress for winter would be ruined by wearing it in a hot factory in the summer. Notice the one pair of rubbers and no overshoes and the other absence of necessities in any up to date girl's wardrobe. 
Girls, no furs for 30 below, merely a scarf. And this advocated by men who appear in beaver coats, otter caps, and warm overshoes say nothing of many of them being deposited at the places of business in private cars about 9 or 10 o'clock. Instead, we get there at 7.30 or 8. Is this because of their superior mental ability or is it some form of special privilege? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very annoying budget. Isn't it? Uh, how mad would you be if you were, like, trying to petition for better wages? And they're like, just buy one skirt. It's easy. And your employer was like, have you tried buying fewer dresses, ladies? <laughs> Do you remember a couple of years ago, McDonald's tried this? Oh, I don't remember that. So it McDonald's... sounds like something they would do. Well, I'll see if I can find what they'd left out specifically. Because it was something crazy. This happened apparently in 2013 and we just got shared around again. Yeah, they're budgeting like $600 for rent. There's not really like grocery costs factored in. Like mm -hmm. it's just a budget that's like really out of touch with how people live in a way that's kind of bizarre. Right. I mean, I guess you can't simultaneously release a realistic budget and also pay your employees below a living wage. <laughs> you have exactly. To, you have to choose one. one. So what you do is you make a bad budget and you lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought you would appreciate the worst budget I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> The point about no furs and stuff, too, was interesting. Because, like, obviously, like, the sort of fur coat... Or not the fur coats, the, like, downy puffer jackets we have yeah. now don't really exist yet, so... Yeah, yeah, so you'd need something to keep you warm. warm. Especially if, yeah, if you're not being dropped off in a private car every day, yeah. right? If you're having to walk to wherever the streetcar yeah. is. Totally. Or, or maybe walk all the way to work, because this is not budgeting for transit. Nope. <laughs> no, notice that also. Yeah. Um... So, obviously, there's this whole minimum wage front going on that Armstrong is continually petitioning for and pushing back against these budgets for. But other things are, like, rising in cost, and Helen Armstrong uh, wages a specific campaign against the rising cost of bread in Winnipeg. Okay. It is called, genuinely, the Bread War in the Winnipeg <laughs> Tribune. <laughs> the crux of the issue with the Bread War is that the price of bread hadn't changed, but the loaf size had. Ah, so you Shrinkflation, is that what they call yes. that? Yeah, yeah, it is. So you're paying the same amount for less bread. They've uh, done the same thing with those Cadbury cream eggs. Right. <laughs> Which is a similar level of importance. Very yeah. important. Alex me. is waging the war on cream eggs. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a meeting in March of 1918 at the Industrial Bureau where women basically declare a war on bread. <laughs> Oh, okay. Like, immediately, like this not, is okay. official. When it was, like, the bread wars, that's not what I thought it was no, going to be. Okay. this is, like, an active campaign they're waging. Right. The city of Winnipeg Against at the bread. time. Yeah. Well, the city of Winnipeg had a bylaw stipulating that bakers could make a 16-ounce fancy loaf or oh. a 20-ounce plain loaf. Hmm. And most bakers were making the 16-ounce loaf but selling it at the price of the 20-ounce. cent or the 20 ounce. Interesting. Uh, the bread committee, which existed at the time... Decides their course of action is to go to city council and make them amend the bylaw and eliminate the 16-ounce option, leaving only the 20-ounce loaf. So, like, is, is what they're doing essentially just, like, baking plain loaves and calling them fancy loaves so they can sell them for more? Is it's that... unclear. I couldn't figure out the distinction between I, it. That, Probably. That must be it, right? They're, like, sprinkling a couple of, like, peppercorns on top. And yeah. I don't know why I said peppercorns. peppercorns. <laughs> That'd be a terrible thing to put on bread. <laughs> you want a nice hard crunch. But, you know, like, a little handful of oats on top. Yeah, and exactly. you're like, this is a fancy look. This is gourmet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So until this bylaw or the amendment is passed, however, um, Armstrong makes this big speech saying we will fight the bakers in our own homes. Oh, wow. Even if the food controllers allow the bakers to raise their prices, we will continue to bake our own bread until the prices come down. Okay. Oh, man, I love that. (laughs) Just like it's just like such an incredible moment of like, like female empowerment to be like, I'm going to bake my own damn bread. Yeah. Like you can't make me pay. Yeah. For uh, like expensive fancy loaf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Armstrong's campaign here is to convince women to bake their own bread out of protest. Right. And she had actually organized volunteers who would go to people's homes and teach them how to make bread if they didn't know how. Hmm. So like she had organized volunteer labor to go and show cool. you how to like create your own bread, yeah. which is pretty cool. For some reason, what city council decides to do instead is um, standardizes the 16 ounce loaf and then adding a new 32 ounce loaf. What? Which seems like the opposite. <laughs> Women are like, we like the 20 ounce loaf. And they were like, what if there's a small one or a huge <laughs> one? You get very small or very big. We've yeah. eliminated the middle. Um, a city council at the time says, I thought people wanted 20 ounces. <laughs> <laughs> so like. That, that feels like, you know, sometimes you go into a meeting with like kind of objectives in mind and so much crossfighting happens that at the end you don't even remember what the original intention <laughs> like something was something has gone horribly yeah. wrong um the headline following this says big opposition to small loaf <laughs> <laughs> oh god i love old newspapers it's so good uh but then we see someone interesting come onto the scene uh jesse kirk comes out to speak in favor of the 16 ounce loaf okay kirk becomes the first woman to uh get a spot on city council Hmm. Right after the Winnipeg general strike. Okay. She's also like, she's a school teacher and pretty active in labor, but yeah, she's for the small loaf for uh, working women who don't need to buy a 20 ounce loaf because that'll okay. go bad. And the converse argument is that women with families need yeah. to buy the bigger loaf. So you having, can't eliminate. Having both loaves would be great. But <laughs> at different but prices. <laughs> the pricing is the issue, not so much the bread size. I actually, I live alone. I'd love a smaller loaf. Right? Exactly. I throw out a lot of bread. Yeah, same. We should, yeah. I keep I, what I do is I think like, oh, that's getting kind of stale. I should save it for croutons. Mm, yeah, and then, and then I it put gets... it in the fridge to make croutons. <laughs> and then I wind up with bread in my fridge. It's the banana bread. Uh, yes, exactly. Dilemma as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, obviously, in the grand scheme of things, this bread war is like really small. It's just like a year long fight about the sizes of loaves. Sure, but it's a sort of good indication of like what's going on in the city. Is that like right? prices are going up no one can really agree on how to solve it and the solutions that are proposed are bad yeah and unhelpful and like also like on the other side of the world in 1917 like the availability of food staples like bread exactly yeah is is literally being used in slogans to promote communism right yeah yeah (laughs) so you know that's a pretty serious issue Mm -hmm. So the minimum wage fight continues on throughout 1918. The bread war kind of peters out on its own. There's probably more. You could look into that by going to city council, but I didn't think we could do a whole episode on Helen Armstrong about bread. <laughs> We've got like- the milk episode. We've got the bread episode. Well, what I'm saying is that, like, stay tuned in 2024 for a uh, bread episode. For the bread episode. <laughs> the bread war. <laughs> Actually, that would be really fun. <laughs> do a bread episode. So we'll do a bread episode. Anyway. There is the bread war. There's um, the minimum wage fight. It takes until 1921 for there to be, like, a minimum wage put in place at all. Mm. And that is for women only. Okay. So there's not, like, a male minimum wage at all yet. And there is kind of a really quick uh, 1918 uh, minimum wage for women in specific trades. Mm. With working standards. 
I don't know how specifically it's maintained, but there is a thing announced in April of 1918 saying that for women, it should be nine hour days, 48 hours a week, and $12 a week for employees that completed a set training period. Hmm. It varies between industries, like, how long the training period is, between six months to two years, but it's mostly for, like, garment manufacturing, right. printing, and uh, factories. Specifically, women's hat factories, for some reason, hmm. is specified. I don't know. Okay. So it's similar to what we see earlier with, like, the men's minimum wage and, like, trained trades, but not yeah. so much for, like, sort of what we'd call, like, entry-level jobs today. Right. And there is probably a uh, bigger political debate happening in 1917 that's, like, probably bigger than the minimum wage and the bread. Okay. You want to take a stab at what's happening in 1917? Uh, well, I know what's happening in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that. You're right. Listen, I'm sorry. <laughs> got a master's degree and that's where it, where it is uh what is happening in the spring of 1917 is rumors of conscription mm, okay or forced enlistment in the military if you're not familiar with it um by 1916 the war has been going on for two years there's uh increasing casualties and recruitment is slowing down so uh prime minister robert borton decides to send more men to the trenches and it's like a bit of a fraught thing nationally um like, I feel like with a lot of sort of old-timey political things, a lot of it comes down to, like, Quebec's not a fan. How do we win over <laughs> Quebec? Because there is um, conscription riots in Quebec in 1918. Ah, uh, history repeats, eh? Yeah. So, um, by August 1917, though, there is an official conscription law in place. Mm -hmm. And not everyone's a huge fan. There's obviously the riot I talked about. And even, like, locally, conscription's pretty divisive. Yeah. There's heavy punishments for avoiding conscription. You can be imprisoned. Um, it's often leveled against draft dodgers, specifically. Hmm. And this isn't counting the social pressure to, like, enlist and to serve. Do you remember the thing where, like, people will give out, like, a white I feather? I do, yeah, which that was essentially, fighting? like, to be, like, you're a coward, essentially. Yeah, basically, yeah. like, you're waving the white flag, yeah. more or less. So there is, like, social pressure if you don't enlist and, like, stigma against being a man who seems fit for war being at home. Mm -hmm. And publicly on the surface, there is a lot of support for conscription. Mm. So, like, in the papers, it's a little bit more, like, raw, raw. And, okay. Like, you don't want to seem like, boo, Canada. Yeah. Right? I get that. So even, like, The Voice, the labor newspaper, which is generally pretty opinionated, takes kind of a middle line stance maybe it's because they haven't figured out yet that like the sons of rich guys are not gonna get conscripted well, oh just wait <laughs> okay. so what the voice says is conscription is the law of the land until people declare uh it is a law that they do not want the election is coming to decide the fate of this law and determine whether it shall remain it's mm. for the people to decide hmm. okay so like i would say the neutrality is kind of against it yeah like you can vote this out if you want to but like it doesn't look great. To... I feel like the voice usually takes a stronger stance on things. I think so. normally it would have been like, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a mass women's meeting shortly afterwards in August uh, where they try to basically promote conscription. So they're all for it. Mm -hmm. uh, the women's meeting makes this statement. We, the women of Winnipeg, in meeting assembled, hereby declare ourselves to be unanimously in favor of the establishment of a nonpartisan national government in our country, and as well the conscription of men and the immediate conscription of women, labor, money, and resources. And further, we hereby declare a determination to work unceasingly for the accomplishment of the aim set forth. Hmm. So uh, taking money, labor, resources, and men to the yep. forefront. There is one catch in all of this, which okay. is that the women were not unanimously in favor. Okay. That was a lie. <laughs> oh, no. So, 
Helen Armstrong and Catherine Ross Queen are both present, and they both suggest the statement reads, we some of the women in Winnipeg. Okay. They are shut down because it made the group sound divided. I mean, it does. And I can see being on the pro-conscription side being like, no. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and also, like, if at home, knowing nothing about that meeting, read, we some Some of the the women, women, I'd be like, what do you mean, some of the the women? women (laughs) Yeah. Very confusing. So Armstrong's argument was that people should have the chance to vote on subscription rather than just have it, like, forced upon them. Because this wasn't a vote. It was just, like, Borden convinced all of the premiers to be on board and then it happened. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Ross Queen, however, she's uh, the wife of John Queen, who was a Winnipeg mayor Mm -hmm. later on, and herself as a pretty dedicated activist, had a more personal argument for why she was against conscription. Three of my brothers are dead, and my youngest brother of 18 is called to the colors. My heart is broken, that's why I second the resolution. The men who make war have not suffered. You never touch the people who make wars. Why, while you women have the chance to end this, you do not take it. Wow. So, like, her family is dying in this war, which is obviously why she's taking a hardline stance against it. Yeah. Um, this doesn't convince the women's meeting to amend their thing. That's too bad. Yeah. But both uh, Ross's and Armstrong's records are, like, They're in the papers. Mm -hmm. So it's recorded that they're both opposed to it, if nothing else. Okay. Yeah. And then the Trades and Labor Council holds a vote itself, asking you members to vote for or against conscription. Mm -hmm. It's not going to do anything. It's just like to see who's in favor of it. Yeah. They pull uh, 23 unions. 736 members are in favor. 1,787 are opposed. Okay. (laughs) So a lot are against it. Right. And, oh boy. It's not just, like, an opposition to the war on the whole. Um, no, by the time that's, we, that's different. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 I know. But what I'm saying is that, like, things are... It's not totally against conscription. It's more about, like, military policy in Winnipeg at the time, oh, too. Okay. Because in 1917, soldiers are coming home. Right. That have been injured in the war front or, yeah. like, have left widowed families behind that don't have support. Right. So, like, financial support for veterans and the reason to push against conscription. Because why would you send them off to war if you can't guarantee they're going to be cared for when they get back? Right. Like, why Why would we agree to this if... Uh, yeah. To giving my life for my country if my country won't then give anything back. Exactly. Yeah. So, Helen Armstrong uh, makes that point, too, when she talks in um, an open letter she writes to The Voice... Which reads, it is more than I can understand how anyone, the capitalist class especially, that remains at home or have the well-paid positions and the least dangerous in the service have the nerve or dare to ask a man to go out and risk his life and, when he returns, calmly request him to hand in his uniform and, in exchange, hand out him a miserable pittance that will reduce a once self-respecting citizen making a good living and enjoying all that home and family means to such a man a miserable pauper dependent on charity or friends. Hmm. Yeah. So I think Armstrong and most of, like, the people involved in Labor League kind of see where things are going already in terms of, like, financial support. Yeah. Like, things are going to get worse. Right. And Armstrong, interestingly, is not, like, anti-war here, right? She's seemingly pro-war as long as people are supported and they can vote on the choices they make. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of middle of the line for some anti-conscription people in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Um, Others took a much stronger stance where they were, like, anti-war completely, and this gets them on, like, the government's shit list, essentially. Yeah, I guess it would. <laughs> um, William Ivins, who goes on to work in the Winnipeg oh, General yeah. Strike, loses his job. Oh, wow. As a, pre- as a reverend, I think, or a reverend or a preacher. He's involved okay. in the church, and he loses it because of his conscription stance. Huh. So there are, like, ramifications for this. Yeah. Armstrong never seemed too scared to speak out against it, but... Um, I don't think she was too scared much. No. <laughs> No. So she begins to push for um, raising allowances and pensions for soldiers. Mm -hmm. They couldn't figure out exactly how much... I couldn't figure out how much it was in 1917, other than, like, not enough. Okay. 
the Women's Labor League thought it should have been a hundred dollars a month. Hmm. And yeah, when you say these things out loud in public, it can sometimes end badly. There's a big anti-conscription rally in the late summer, and then one again in the fall of 1917, and soldiers come back who are upset about the lack of support for the war effort. Yeah, because okay. you can frame conscription as being unsupportive, or sure. being anti-conscription as being unsupportive. So. Uh, soldiers turn up to counter-protest at this rally. Okay. And things start to get, uh, pretty heated. Uh, most of the folks on the platform at this event were men. You see, uh, Fred Dixon, J.S. Woodsworth, William Ivins. Mm-hmm. You will know these names as strike leaders. Yeah. A lot of the strike leaders were also- I don't know that everyone listening will know these- I know these <laughs> yeah. names as strike leaders. I met you, and then maybe, like, the people that we know in the community. Sure. So, the men involved in this are- pretty frequently strike leaders in the future so you see a lot of them involved mm-hmm. in like the anti-conscription hmm. fight in 1917 yeah. which is like it's interesting that they're all there yeah and they're all working together on this as well there is one woman on the platform at this rally okay it is helen armstrong of course it is <laughs> um so gertrude richardson who was staying with the armstrongs for a bit and wrote for the voice wrote about these meetings and wrote that helen was um brutally handled by the soldiers and on one instance was actually bruised from head to foot Oh, wow. And she was sometimes the only woman, or the only person standing between the soldiers and the stage. Huh. So it's like, Helen Armstrong was not, like, a particularly big or intimidating-looking woman. She was just... No, I remember during some of the, like, Black Lives Matters protests, there were, like, kind of, like, moms. Do you remember this? There were, like, chains of moms who were, like, standing essentially between, like, police and Black protesters being, like, you're gonna have to go through me, a mom. Yeah, so similar, like, if you get through me, a woman. Yeah. Which didn't always go so well for No, no. And even being apparently brutally handled and apparently bruised actually didn't stop her from going to these meetings. Hmm. Uh, in December of 1917, she's caught distributing anti-conscription materials around Winnipeg. And this leads to her first proper arrest on December 13th, okay. 1917. Um, Armstrong and some unnamed woman who's part of the Women's Labor League are gathering outside of a women's next of kin meeting at the Walker Theater. They have an eight-page pamphlet by John S. Ewart. He's a Canadian lawyer who's focused on constitutional rights and Canadian independence. Mm-hmm. Ewart had written a whole pamphlet on basically, like, the legality of conscription. Okay. And they're handing this out to the women that are leaving the meeting. Mm -hmm. This is also a meeting for uh, next of kin, so women with family in the military. Right. So Interesting. um, Women at the meeting called the police. Oh, no. And six, and this is what the voice calls them, burly police officers come galloping in with a wagon. Whoever Armstrong was with, like, bolts. But Armstrong gets (laughs) captured. (laughs) And she gets arrested for distributing rubbish. Okay. It doesn't seem... She gets released yeah. pretty quickly. Nothing seems I mean, to I don't go think, anywhere. I don't think that's a real criminal charge. No, they were just trying to make a show of yeah. it. And around, like, late 1917, early 1980s, when we see the government really start to crack down on what they think is sedition. Mm, yeah. So this leads to a ban, for example, on foreign language publications. Hmm. There's a couple, like, German newspapers in Winnipeg. Yeah. That we had a lot of German immigrants and they were mostly just publishing local news. Yeah. But the fear was that they were publishing secret coded messages. Yeah. Which is not what was happening. Yeah. But uh, you can no longer publish in your own language, which was surely not great for a lot of the communities in Winnipeg that couldn't read English. Right. Um, They also put in place an anti-loafing bylaw by 1918 where uh, police go around and harass men who don't look like they're busy. I guess just like no loitering, essentially. Yeah, basically. Um, even the Winnipeg Telegram thought that might have been a step too far. Wow. And the Telegram was our most conservative yeah. <laughs> paper. Uh, men were also sentenced to work in, uh, manual labor camps. If they avoided conscriptions, they would be sent yeah. to, like, basically go build machines of war. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, cut down lumber. 
Uh, and when men got arrested for draft, do- draft dodging, Helen Armstrong brought them food and clothing in prison. Okay. Yeah. These tensions continue on until the war ends in 1918, but that little bit of 1918 is, like, busy yeah. for everyone. Um, obviously, the most notable thing that's going to happen in 1918 across most of North America is uh, the Spanish influenza epidemic. Mm, yeah. And that sweeps across North America. Soldiers start to return this home. This is a crazy period. I know. When I was writing this episode, I was like, okay, like, it's just, like, leading up to the strike. It'll be really easy and to talk like, about. you're like, no, the Spanish flu. <laughs> well, I'd be like, okay, so, right, I need to get over, like, the, all the strikes in 1916 and 1917. Because, yeah. like, the Woolworth strike is big for Helen Armstrong. Yeah. And then, like, okay, but there's also, like, Prohibition kind of comes up, and there's the bread thing and inflation. Yeah. And then, like, conscription, and then, oh, God, influenza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a busy couple of years. Yeah. It cannot have been fun to, like, live through this. No. No, I can't imagine. Or to be someone involved in, like, trying to organize against anything that's happening. Because, yeah. like, it's really fighting against a tide that's pushing you way, way back. Right. So, in May of 1918, Helen Armstrong steps down as president of the Women's Labor League. She says she is of poor health and has other obligations. Yeah. The Winnipeg Tribune notes she has worked hard to get the organization perfected and is largely due to her efforts that the League has been met with the success it has. She will be missed and her place will be hard to fill. This isn't to say that, like, Helen Armstrong is out of the game. She's still working with unions. That's what she's busy doing is just organizing yeah. more. She's just like, I've set up this one. You guys deal with this. Yeah. So she starts working with the Householders and Hotel Workers Union to organize, like, dances and fundraisers at the Labor Temple. And she's also still listed as president of the Labor League for months afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so she doesn't, like, step down completely. Yeah. Um, Lynn Flett is proposed as the next president. Flett and her sister Winona Flett Dixon, who is the wife of oh, Fred Dixon. Yeah, I know Fred leader. Dixon, another yeah. strike leader, yeah. Um, so, not uh, personally, of course, <laughs> uh, Lynn and Winona were both members of the sort of women's suffrage movement. Lynn is a founding member of the Political Equality League and a woman, a member of the Women's Press Club. Um, and by 1919, Lynn Flett becomes the president of the Women's Labor League, but it takes a while for her to like get into that position. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like a fun I found out when I was like quickly looking into them. Um, so Winona had married Dixon, and. Winona dies in 1922, at which point Lynn just moves in with Fred to help raise him and his, like, kids. Okay. Which is kind of nice. Just, hmm. like, family sticking together. Yeah. And it's, like, little labor family trucking huh. through it. Yeah. yeah. So, moving into the spring of 1918, Helen Armstrong's a little less, like, publicly active in the labor scene. Um, in June, both Helen and George Armstrong are, like, out of town. They are in Fort William organizing labor movements there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, maybe they took a vacation. No. no. No, they... What happened is George went to Fort William first as part of the Brotherhood of Carpenters. Mm-hmm. And then Helen goes shortly afterwards to help form a women's labor league there. They just seem like a really perfect match, don't they? <laughs> they do. There's a lot of stories about, like, them and their personal lives where they love to bicker. Ah, uh, interesting. There's interviews with their grandkids that uh, Paula Kelly did. Where it was like, well, yeah, like, Grandma was always, like, getting mad at Granddad. (laughs) (laughs) But it was clear they loved each other. Right. Even when they were fighting. Sure. I mean, some couples are like that. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. It's when they're like, we're both going to go to a different town. It's the same town. We're both going to do separate labor activities. (laughs) So, while Helen is in Fort William, she gives an illuminated review of the recent, now historic, labor strike in Winnipeg. Hmm. This is uh, 1918. Not 1919 quite yet. Do you know what strike is happening in the spring-ish of 1918? 
I, I could guess, but I'm worried I'm going to get it wrong. No, take a guess. I mean, there's lots of strikes. Is there a postal worker strike? No. No? Okay. I've just made that up, apparently. I mean, there, I mean, there probably wasn't there some may point. Have been. There have been, historically. <laughs> um, what, have, what Helen is referring to here is a 1918 city worker strike that very, oh, very nearly okay. becomes a general strike. Okay. I think I did know about this. Yeah. So that citizens group I'd mentioned a little bit earlier, that um, is now the Winnipeg Citizens Alliance by the spring of 1918. Okay. <laughs> We've got so many different little names. <laughs> <laughs> they go through a lot, and we're going to get into more of them later. <laughs> um, so the Winnipeg Citizens Alliance is getting worried about there being strikes and having labor shortages. So Alderman Frank Fowler puts forward this new amendment at City Hall called the Fowler Amendment that essentially bans civic workers from striking. Okay. It's basically you have to give, I think, 60 days or something. I can't remember what it was. There was Wild. Some, that might have been one of the parts of it. Yeah. But regardless, it's like city workers can't strike. Right. It passes very narrowly. Mm. And then uh, members of Winnipeg's Rotary Club and the Board of Trade and the Real Estate Board were all like, great. <laughs> we love this. Of course. The workers did not think so. They no. were not a fan. So on May 14th, Winnipeg's firefighters walk off the job on strike. They're the first union to go. Wow. Yeah. This is despite being mid-contract negotiation that was actually okay. looking good. They were oh. going to get what they want, and they bounced. That's so interesting. They were just mad about the agreement. Yeah. Uh, the next that follow are rail workers and telephone operators. So the hello girls also go again. Yep. <laughs> um, the Tribune has a funny comment in this about the phone operators, saying that, For the first, si first time since the telephone strike a year ago, subscribers could not complain of today's poor service. There wasn't any. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good joke. Pretty good joke. <laughs> Thank you, Tribune Trumps. Yeah. Um, this is a whole separate thing in the 1910s that's like a feud between streetcars and jitneys, which are just taxis. Okay. Which is not like super worth going into, but jitneys start scabbing for streetcars during this strike. Oh, yeah. fascinating. There is a whole other thing. It's in uh, Jim Blanchard's book about the Great War. We could probably do a streetcar episode at some point. We should. But yeah, Jim Blanchard's episode about Winnipeg during the Great War talks a lot about the streetcar jitney feud. Huh. Which is one of those things where I'm also like, I can't get into the streetcar yeah. jitney feud. <laughs> oh, God. Even if jitney is a fun word. Uh, it also was the term for a dance at a dance hall that was 10 hmm. cents because a taxi fare was 10 cents okay. in a jitney. Like a dance was 10 cool. cents. Just a fun factory that has nothing to do with yep. what's going on in the episode. <laughs> so by May 21st, there are 12,510 workers on strike. Okay. This includes railway workers, telephone operators, firemen, electrical workers, teamsters, repair shopmen, waterworks employees, cartage teamsters, freight handlers, and stationary engineers. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of the city's, yeah. like, maintenance force gone. Yeah. So at a labor council meeting in the middle of the strike, Helen Armstrong uh, speaks sort of in favor of this, noting that a returned soldier had arrived home and tried to read her meter. And she quickly called him a scab, kicked him out of her house, and told the neighbors to not let him in. <laughs> she also mentioned that uh, the local council of women in Winnipeg opposed the strike. And there was some stuff about, like, convincing women to go back to work on the telephones is, like, a moral thing. Like, you should be there. <laughs> it's your Jeez. own. And then um, Armstrong points out that they were the ones that, the people that were arguing this, uh, controlled. I'll have to restart this paragraph. Okay. I'm all over the place. So in this same speech, Armstrong mentions that uh, the local council of women have opposed the strike. They're mm -hmm. trying to get the Winnipeg's our telephone the telephone girls back to work on like moral grounds, being right. like you need to be back there for your own good. <laughs> and Armstrong points out that the local council of women were also the ones that called the patrols on picketers the okay. year before, <gasps> so she knew who they were. And she, yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> got beef with Helen Armstrong. They, uh, Helen Armstrong has beef with lots of people also. <laughs> um, given the scale of all of this, it's maybe not like a huge surprise that there is talk of it turning into a general strike within a matter right. of days of this thing launching. Over 10,000 people is a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That's, whatever, 5% of the city's population? Yep. And that is mostly people doing, like, waterworks and firefighting. Like, uh, things are pretty need, important. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't really want the firefighters gone for no, very long. Not in 1910s Winnipeg, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. Everything's made of wood. <laughs> Everything's lit by candles. <laughs> so... The uh, Citizens Alliance is staunchly opposed to this new development. Oh, you don't say. Which, also, they caused. (laughs) They pushed for this. So they hold a meeting at the Royal Alexander Hotel, and they form a Citizens Committee of 100. Oh. (laughs) This might be an almost familiar name. Yep. (laughs) And they they try and endorse a Board of Trade resolution calling for a moratorium on strikes till the war is over. Okay. No. No. (laughs) Yeah. That's not how it works. So unlike the Committee of 1000, which is their sort of follow-up in 1919... Yeah, so we'll we'll talk about the... I'll, I'll try... I don't know actually how I'm going to work them in, but we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about them. them. We'll talk about them at some point. But so, the Citizens Committee of 1000 we'll get to during the strike. Yeah. So the Citizens Committee of 1000, however, um, we don't really know their membership because they never 100? published it. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, with 100, we know. Oh, okay. We do know. Okay. We do know. because We think it was probably around 100, but this includes eight women in a Boy Scout? Oh. So like, like, a, like a child? Unclear. Or like a Boy Scout leader. Unclear. Okay. I hope a I hope a child There's one boy who's like, I hate strikes. Uh, this is badge. This is a union breaking badge. Just a little Boy Scout. Yeah. So the list is public. Um What was not public is that some of Winnipeg's wealthier members, which was included a lot of the people we're gonna see in nineteen nineteen, go to uh, Winnipeg South MP. Uh, George Allen, and the Agriculture Minister Thomas Creer, and the Prime Minister Robert Borden asking for an amendment to the War Measures Act to make striking a criminal offense. Okay. This is 1918. That's... The push has already begun to sort of criminalize striking. Right. By the same people that are going to do it next year. I, I mean, people still try and do this, yeah. right? This happened very recently right, in Ontario. Yeah. And it's just 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 wild to me because you actually can't force people to work. Like yeah. you can try, but but you just li- you literally can't force people to yeah. work. <laughs> I mean, unless you're going to use violence, right? Yeah. Um. There's a really funny. St- I'll get to this in a second. Um. There's also Alexander McCurdy, who is the provincial morality officer, because we have morality officers in the <laughs> 1910s. Things are great. Um. He sneaks into a trades and labor council meeting in the midst of this to try and see what's going on. And people were checking at the door to try and prevent, like, non-members from getting in, but he snuck past. And he waited until William Ivins was speaking, and then he mounts the platform to interrupt it. And people did not like Alexander McCurdy Hmm. speaking up at their meeting. Um, People yelled, throw him out. Who is he? And (laughs) kick him in the ribs. (laughs) Real sliding scale of things. Who is he? Kick him him out. Kick him him in the the ribs. ribs. (laughs) So, Those are varying amounts of people who know who this is. <laughs> right? Or maybe who is he? He's like, a, who's this guy? Who's this clown? Oh, yeah, Get maybe. Him out of, who knows? Yeah. Um, regardless, he gets kicked out. Um, but not kicked in the ribs. At the same meeting, someone quotes a statistic saying that wages had gone up about 20%, but goods had gone up about 80 Yeah. Yeah. Which is the stat I would have used on my tours back when I was doing them during the strike stuff. Hmm. Um, 
So there is pretty considerable support for a strike and even a general one in the city at this time. Right. But it doesn't happen. Um, Ed Parnell, who is the lead for the alliance and head of the Committee of 1000, gets a response from uh, Thomas Creer, the agricultural minister I'd mentioned. It's on the back of his letter. So Creer hadn't got a new piece of stationery. He flipped his over, wrote on it. Sorry to hear of your trouble. Why not paying the people decent wages? I think you you sent me this yes. and it made me really happy because I got a pretty hefty scholarship for, for, from like Thomas oh, Alexander right. Creer. Yeah. Yeah. So it made me feel pretty good that he yeah. at least in this in this instance was it's like, yeah. Yeah. Have you tried paying them? Yeah. Would that solve this? <laughs> and like, yeah, probably yeah. actually. Um, Prime Minister Borden says it's Premier Norris's problem. So he's like, eh, I don't want to deal with this. I'm yeah. busy. And like, yeah, probably in the middle of 1918, he's got other there stuff. There are other with- things happening. But what he does do is send Senator Gideon Robertson to Winnipeg to deal with it. Okay. Gideon Robertson is also sent to Winnipeg in 1919 to interfere and spy on the strike. 1918 is a really weird parallel to 1918 and how yeah. it all plays out. Huh. Um, Helen Armstrong would go on to criticize Parnell, the Committee of 100's lead, at a labor meeting on May 24th. Parnell had been quoted as saying, we must back the city council, right or wrong. And Armstrong's argument was that the stance would delay any chance of ending the strike. Right. At the same meeting, uh, the Labor League condemned the Women's Council for arranging uh, scabs to work hauling freight and managing telephone lines. So they've mm. got women on the workforce. Also, like, 1990, where women start doing typically male jobs. Yeah. Like pumping gas. And then by the time we reach May 24th, Gideon Robertson has arrived in Winnipeg and is trying to negotiate into the strike. And it's going pretty well, actually. Okay, so I guess that's why they call him back for the next yeah. one. Robertson seems to have been, like, decently good at mediating the okay. strike, for what it was worth. Uh, by this point, the strike seems to be nearing an end. The strikers and the Citizen com- Committee are mostly, mostly in agreement. Mm-hmm. They're kind of on board. of like, yeah, we'll go back, whatever. The hitch seems to be uh, letting the firefighting work- or firefighters join a union. Yeah. They seem to have been so close before that strike, and it kind of went downhill. Uh. Um, the compromise that goes forward is that firefighters can unionize, but their officers are excluded. Intr- okay. Sure. Hmm. And then they resolve it. The Fowler Amendment is revoked, and then city workers agree to give a 60-day notice. This is where that comes in, for future work stoppage. Okay. 60 days is a long time. That's a long time. I mean, that, that's, that's like gonna, three months. That's going to reduce the... Bad math. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's Unless a long time. <laughs> 60 business days would be like three months. Um, but no, that I mean, that's going to reduce the effectiveness of your strike pretty severely. If you have advanced warning the strike if is you have two, If you have two months to like <laughs> like put out job postings yep. for like, there's a strike coming. Can you come yep. drive buses or whatever? Exactly. Um. Gideon Robertson goes back to Ottawa and is apparently very confident in his efforts here because he writes, A recurrence of the trouble will not take place in Winnipeg for many years. Uh-oh. <laughs> Foreshadowing. One of the worst predictions. So, okay, this is a quick question for you both. Who do you think won this strike? Who came out on top here? Oh, I don't know. Um. Yeah, I don't know, because, like, they got... I don't it's know. the people. The people <laughs> came out on top. That's why they didn't strike the next year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they can't have won everything they wanted, right? Yeah. Because another strike happens in another year. Right, yes. But it's like, it's hard. But I'm like trying to think about it if I didn't know that that was going to happen. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it's tough because even the free press at the time felt that it was up to the class of person you asked who had won. Mm. So, like, the workers succeed because they defeat the Fowler Amendment. Right. Sure, great. But the Committee of 100 felt that the 60-day notice ties workers to, like, a legal and moral tie. Yeah. So they've put more restrictions on striking, so they've won. So, like, really no one comes out on top and nothing is solved is the end result of all of this. Yeah. I mean, again, too, like, those restrictions are, like, never really going to hold people in place if they're super pissed off. Exactly. So the strike is staved off, and off the Armstrongs go to Fort William to talk about the strike and what they've done. And then uh, in early September, Helen goes to a trades conference in Toronto as a delegate. Mm -hmm. Uh, To a friend, she wrote that she was following in her father's footsteps, who had gone to a similar conference many years earlier, and he had actually just passed not too long ago in 1918. Hmm. So, like, after her father's death, he comes up a little bit more in meetings. She mentions that, like, she's following in her dad's steps with the union stuff, which is very sweet. Yeah. Um, Now, in the fall of 1918, Helen gets involved in a new conflict with the Women's Labor League this time. (laughs) Um, she had apparently railroaded through a resolution to ask the province to resume the sale of liquor in Manitoba. Oh, okay. I don't totally know why, because the minutes don't exist. Huh. So I don't know what happened here. Okay. She also criticized the minimum wage board in some open letters, saying that she was the president of the Labor League. She wasn't. <laughs> um, and also, she hadn't been authorized to send the letter. Oh, Helen. <laughs> she periodically got into some trouble with them for being maybe a little too pushy. Right. This time I made the papers that, like, the Women's Labor League is not happy with Helen yeah. Armstrong. Yeah. But, like, this is pretty small potatoes compared to sure. what else is going on in the fall of 1918, mm-hmm. which is influenza. Yeah. We're finally getting to that part. Of okay. 19- this is a busy year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so influenza sweeps across most of the world between 1917 to 1919. It travels with soldiers returning home from the war. We think it started in France somewhere in the trenches, but, like, who knows? Yeah. Um, the first infected soldiers come to Winnipeg by train in late September, with the first reported case in the city on October 1st. Mm-hmm. On October 12th, schools and public spaces were closed. Gosh. So, like, two weeks, everything is shut down. Yeah. Um, Winnipeg's middle class quickly organizes workers to volunteer for the sick. There's an emergency diet kitchen founded, an emergency nursing mm. group. These movements are uh, these movements are led by prominent Winnipeg women. There's uh, Margaret McWilliams, who's involved in the suffrage movement, Minnie Campbell, who is the widow of an attorney general, Colin Campbell, and Mrs. A. Code, who would become the president of the Board of Management at the Margaret Scott Nursing Mission. Oh, okay. That's a fun little tie into an earlier episode yeah. there. Um, Code is also the daughter, Code is also the daughter of uh, E.L. Drury, who owned the brewery in the city. Mm-hmm. So, like, it is kind of like the well-to-do middle upper class who's involved in running this stuff. Sure. And the nursing mission, Margaret Scott, was involved in flu or in relief during the epidemic as well. This keeps them pretty busy. They made a visit of over um, it's 1,380 homes mm-hmm. over the course of the epidemic to families stricken with the flu who couldn't have got help otherwise. Right. And the nurses would actually stay with the sick families for days at a time, sometimes wow. even despite the risk to their own health. Okay. Just to try and save whoever was in these like working class family homes. Yeah. So basically every member of these groups is also a member of the local council of women. Hmm. Who you might uh, remember as being the ones who called the patrols on Woolworths and the one Armstrong had called right. out during the 1918 strike. Oh, man. So the volunteers are hard to track. We don't really know how much of them were. Most of them were um, unmarried Anglo-Protestant women with at least a high school education. Because okay. they're working as nurses. Yeah. Uh, some were teachers, other were clerks. And with the high schools, or with schools closed, teachers could volunteer their time to this mm-hmm. instead. And teachers could qualify for additional training and labor. Uh 
there's also a whole thing about making sure women volunteering weren't performing unsuitable tasks or things that would threaten their modesty or charity. Okay. Which I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Not going to speculate, but... Morality politics in yeah. the 1910s. So what's interesting is that in all of the writing in the press around influenza, Helen Armstrong is not mentioned once. Hmm. Um, so this was, like, not her thing? Uh, or like... Well, the labor league doesn't come up at all. Okay. Um, which is especially interesting that Helen Armstrong had experience organizing during epidemics. Okay. When she was staying in Butte with her husband, hmm. there had been an epidemic of smallpox or something like that. Okay. I can't remember the exact disease. Regardless, they had tried to get um, wealthy people to open their homes as hospices for the yeah. sick because it was a mining town and all of the men right. couldn't fall ill at once. That would just, like, devastate the economy. Yeah. And the uh, wealthy women would not, so Armstrong actually went to the brothels. Oh. And turned the brothels into hospices. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. She's a very cool person. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, because of that, it's weird Helen Armstrong is not involved in this. Yeah. And, like, the I Trades mean... and Labor Council doesn't really come up at all. Like, this. is she doing other stuff at this time? Not so or, far. That, like, I, I wonder, can... you know, her dad just died. That's Maybe true. she's just, like, taking some time off. Grieving, I don't so, know. So, um, Estelle Wynne-Jones, in her book on the influenza epidemic, mm-hmm. which is also great. I was just going to say great book, yeah. Um, mentions that there actually wasn't a whole lot of trust between the working class and middle class women following 1918. That makes sense. So, so that I guess, might you know, just... these are the people who call the cops on us, right? So, like... Possibly the Labor League tried to offer some forms of support, but they don't have any writing behind. Mm. So we don't know what they did. Like, yeah. it might just be a matter of sourcing. Yeah. Um, we know that she appears in the Trades and Labor Council notes in the paper asking for financial assistance for a uh, Mrs. Webb who had lost her husband and children to the, in the epidemic and then took offerings for the family. So she was collecting money for mm. some people. Uh, she worked with the Mother's Allowance Committee to push the government to look into funeral prices, which were rising and costing widows more. Okay. Um, also, Helen Armstrong was beefing with the women's <laughs> with the women's council, so that might have genuinely been part of it, is ah. that she just didn't want to work with these people she didn't like. Yeah. And presumably didn't like her. Um, but unions were also out there providing um, formal and informal assistance to members affected by the outbreak, mm-hmm. although in Winnipeg, they did not include organized labor in the, like, relief plans at all. Hmm. And there's not, like, sick pay. Yeah. So in uh, Vancouver, for example, they actually talk to labor, city management, and women's groups to sort of coordinate relief efforts. Winnipeg mm. doesn't do that. Okay. The city kind of shuts things down, and then you have volunteers right. managing the rest, and they don't really consult with the working class at all, hmm. which can't have like bolstered any more trust Yeah. at the time. And this leaves people out of work when uh, buildings shut down. There's no financial assistance. There's no paid leave. So, like, people who are in dire straits already wind up worse off when, like, public services shut down, unfortunately. I guess, you know, people are giving, whatever, Trudeau a pretty hard time about, like, CERB now. Yeah. But But that would have been, like, a lifesaver during this. Yeah. Because you can also connect a lot of 1919 to what happens during the influenza epidemic. Yeah. Um, it really kind of brings into stark relief these class differences, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so unions start to use a pretty gendered argument about reopening some stuff in the city during the mm. epidemic, saying that they're starving families by keeping men out of work and out okay. of emergency planning. There is opposition to the ban on gatherings as well. Like, they do shut down public meetings. Yeah. Um, Helen Armstrong is actually at a strike meeting in early October during the ban, um, the Trades and Labor Council holds an open-air meeting just outside of city limits in oh. late October. 
Part of this was oh, because uh, freight workers were on strike, and the Trades and Labor Council was holding a general vote strike, a general okay. strike vote outside yeah. of the city. <laughs> that just didn't go anywhere. Uh, there's uh, 200 men in Winnipeg striking. It's like a whole bunch of other stuff. The railway strike also leads to five guys being arrested. Oh. <laughs> so they don't hold a big public vote for this like late 1918 strike attempt, but they yeah. have a five-day ballot distribution. 92% of voters are in favor of a strike. Oh, wow. But what happens is the strike leaders are released, and they're like, we'll call off the strike if you release them, guys. Right. Uh, there's also a November election where Mayor Fred Davis- Davidson loses to Charles Gray, who be- is our mayor during the 1919 yeah. Winnipeg General Strike. Uh, members of the Winnipeg Labor League are also hit by the outbreak. Um, Ray Calhoun, the president of the Metal Trades Council and a close friend of R.B. Russell, dies of influenza, as is uh, Lilius Veitch, a member of the Women's Labor League. And um, of William Ivan's Labor Church, and then Isabella Duncan, the leader of the Housemaids Union. Hmm. So, like, we're losing working class workers because, of course, we are during the strike because they're the ones that struggle to access healthcare. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, the the actual healthcare at this time. You know, it's, we didn't have a ton of sort of medications and stuff that no. could help you. Like, mostly, what would affect your ability to get better would be like. Do you have a comfortable place where you can rest? Are you able to rest? Yep. Or are you having to, like, go back to work immediately? Yep. Do you have access to water that's not... Do you have good nutrition? Yep. Yeah. So what the influenza epidemic shows us pretty starkly is, yeah, the class gaps in Winnipeg yeah. and these sort of, like, stark inequalities that have been growing and growing over the course of the war. Yeah. Um, people in poorer neighborhoods live in close quarters, um, something like tenement houses or boarding houses with multiple generations of families living together. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Winnipeg Aqueduct is still not done. Right. So, like, that clean drinking water is, like, hard to access, especially in poorer areas. Yeah. And then heating was also hard if you couldn't find wood. Yeah. So you might be living in a cold house without water. Yeah. In the middle of fall. It's not a great way to get better if you get influenza. And then also, like, healthcare access is difficult because immigrants to Winnipeg couldn't speak English and doctors couldn't speak anything else and apparently you can't publish things in, in other, other languages anymore right so like you can see it pretty starkly in the death rates yeah. for influenza in the city um according to the city health department in the north end there's 6.73 deaths from influenza per a thousand people whereas in the south end it was four point uh 4.02 okay. deaths per a thousand so that's uh, like a 50 percent increase in the north end yeah um the poor were also more likely to die of the disease if infected so, like, if right. you caught it, you might recover. So, uh, uh, in the North End, it was 90.5 every thousand people in the North End would die of influenza, as opposed to 45.6 in okay. the South End. wow. Like, that is a huge gap. Yeah. And the influenza epidemic ends basically as quickly as it begins, because it runs through the population so fast. Right, yeah. So, in December, things start to reopen. Hmm. But that damage is, like done yeah of course i mean huge portions of the population even like and you know outside winnipeg especially like they're in rural places where totally you know a third of the population has been decimated exactly and in december people start to meet in public again and over the past couple of years the trades and labor council leadership had been like shifting a little with a lot more members of the socialist party taking spots Mm. so by late 1918 we have people like R.B. Russell taking more prominent spots. Uh, George Armstrong is also an active member on the council. Like, mm-hmm. the most vocal socialists in the city are pretty involved in labor planning. Yeah. Which is fine. Unless, of course, you are members of city council oh, or yeah. the Winnipeg <laughs> Citizens Alliance. In which case, this is a dire threat to public safety. <laughs> uh, 
So you mentioned knowing what was going on in Russia sure. in 1917, yeah. which is the Russian Revolution. Yeah, so I can see why people would be... I mean, even even if you were a socialist, for example, or like a socialist sympathizer, yeah. the idea that uh, an entire government could be overthrown and gotten rid of and replaced with something drastically different so quickly could be frightening. Yeah, totally. You know. I, I it's would a be, big change. I would be scared if that I thought that might happen tomorrow. You're always scared. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, I mean, also, like, on top of everything else happening, that's yeah. a lot to just, like, keep piling on. It's yeah. This is, like, a nuts period of time in terms of, like, radical things happening. Yeah. So, the newly formed communist government is something of an inspiration to some labor leader- leaders who see it as workers finally succeeding. Yeah. Um, some... Some workplaces in government see it differently. Sure. <laughs> but uh, they hold a, uh, the Trades and Labor Council holds a meeting at the Walker Theater on Sunday, December 22nd, billed as a workers' rally to the colors and the fight for liberty. Hmm. It was um, also a day of protest for the use of keeping political prisoners and sending folks to fight Russia in the war. Okay. Because we still have political prisoners yeah. here in Canada, even the war is over by this point. Like, yeah. November's passed, the war is done. But we're still holding on to these people we've arrested. Mm-hmm. So what the Labor Council mostly wants is for us to let go of those prisoners who might just be, like, draft dodgers. Yeah. And not send them over to fight Russia. Yeah. Or, or like, not even draft dodgers, but just, like, people who, like, tried to cross the border Order. to go get work. Uh, or any like... immigrant that yeah. they thought was kind of shady. <laughs> the speakers present, uh, present were John Queen, R.B. Russell, Sam Blueberg, William Ivins, Fred Dixon, William Hoop, who was involved in the Woolworth strike, George mm-hmm. Armstrong, and a handful of others. I assume Helen's involved in the meeting in some way because George is there, but she doesn't come up in any of the writings on it. Mm-hmm. And her only mention in December of 1918 is this. She wins a bean guessing contest hosted by <laughs> Martin Electrical Appliances. Oh, I love that. She wins a coffee percolator. Oh, great. Things are looking up for her. That's what Helen Armstrong needs is more energy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so I have to mention the meeting because it is, like, pretty important to the history of labor in the city. But, like, Helen Armstrong is aware of it, but not seemingly public. Um, Interestingly and unsurprisingly about the meeting, uh, the newspapers are aware of it. The Winnipeg Winnipeg Tribune highlights only a handful of pro-Russia quotes from Queens and the other speakers and ignores the bulk of the speeches. Mm. Uh, One of the resolutions approved by the group for the record is that the conditions of this country do not and have never warranted such an unjustable interference... With the liberties of the people, we view with apprehension the introduction of autocratic methods and the increasing tendency of a few men to usurp the prerogatives of the people. Okay. So just like, we don't like what the government's doing. Yeah. Which is pretty standard. Sure. (laughs) And like, to be clear, Queen and Russell were both pretty Mm pro-revolution, but they weren't advocating for it in that moment. Yeah. They were just saying like, release people that you've arrested, please. Right. Not everyone was capable of recognizing that. There was a member of the Northwest Mounted Police incognito at that meeting taking notes. Okay. Uh, This would come up later during the trials in the Winnipeg General Strike, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to put this on record. Love to do a series on one day. (laughs) We'll get to it eventually, I'm sure. (laughs) This will be in like 2027. (laughs) Yeah. Years down the road. So now we're going into 1919. We're in the home stretch now of this episode, (laughs) which is so long. Um, there's a few, like, Nolan Armstrong things you have to fit into what's going on in 1919. Yeah. That, like, December meeting in 1918 kind of, like, raised some eyebrows, but hadn't done much. 
But by January, tensions were starting to rise between immigrants in the city and returning soldiers. Okay. So um, that epidemic had made the wealth gap a lot wider. There's wage issues. People are pretty mad about the Walker Theater meeting. And then there's also um, the murders of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg Mm, uh, on January 16th by German soldiers. They're both pretty, like, famous communists who are executed by the state, essentially. So there is a memorial in Winnipeg held by the Socialist Party of Canada in their honor in Winnipeg. Um, The plans are to hold the meeting at the Walker Theater, but they're told that the Walker Theater has been booked by the Labour Party. Okay. Uh, George Armstrong accuses the Labour Party of doing this on purpose Hmm. to, like, block their event. Russell also accuses them of this. But the Trades and Labor Council claim they have no official connection to any of it, and they just booked the theater for a different thing. I mean, that seems like a thing that could happen. <laughs> it seems like a thing that could happen. Who knows? Yeah. Leftists falling victim to infighting? <laughs> <laughs> Never happened before. <laughs> so the meeting winds up happening on January 19th with a similar group of speakers to the December meeting, and word gets out to returned soldiers that this is going on. Mm. Soldiers are prodded in the papers, mostly by the telegram, and by members of the business class that they should be mad about what's happening okay. at this and they do get mad, and things get ugly pretty fast. Yeah. There is a meeting held later um, on January 26th in Market Square, which is led by socialists, and a group of soldiers quickly interrupt it, and it spirals into a two-day riot. Yikes. Um, 300 men fight for three hours, um, partially with fists and then with planks torn from gates on oh Selkirk Avenue. This is not the first time Winnipeg has had a riot that's involved tearing planks off of stuff. <laughs> Just stop tearing planks off of stuff. Um... The fighting is a mix of soldiers and civilians, although people start to argue later that the bulk of the rioting was just done by, like, random people trying to cause chaos. Mm. Um, Regardless, soldiers make two men on Dufferin Avenue kneel and kiss the Union Jack. They make an Italian barber show his naturalization papers. Wow. Um, Soldiers assault immigrants while the police stand by and watch. They (sighs) wreck the Edelweiss Brewery, the Socialist Party of Canada offices, the German Club, where they throw a piano out a window. (sighs) An automobile dealership owned by Michael Ert, who was uh, just... Not a socialist, just kind of an immigrant in the city. Yeah. Um, they go to Michael Bloomberg's store, who was a socialist but was not in town. Soldiers start to march to the Swift Canadian Company's plant, demanding they fire all immigrants or they'll wreck the place. Wow. So the tension here, the crux of it, is that these soldiers are coming home to no jobs. Right. That immigrant yeah. men have taken in the interim. That's mm-hmm. kind of what it all boils down to, but yeah. they're picking on the wrong people. Yeah, here. of course. Um. So Mayor Charles Gray intervenes, Mm -hmm. tells them to go home and go about the thing the proper way, which is to say, write to the business and demand they fire the enemy aliens. No, you were so close. You were almost on the right track. Yeah. That's Charles Gray's whole political career. (laughs) It's like, almost, buddy. Yeah. You almost did something all right, but not this time. No. No, and like- Had us in the first half of the sentence and then just- Petered out. Yeah. Um- 21 buildings are damaged over the course of these two days. Yeah. Mayor Charles Gray, who is two months into his term as mayor, blames oh, no. immigrants for not keeping their mouth shut. Oh my god. I know. What did they do? They had a meeting. <laughs> like, had jobs at businesses? Yeah. So, after the two days, things are to peter out, and several men are arrested because of their involvement in the riots, although public empathy is very, very squarely on the soldier side. Hmm. So, like, things are not looking great for Winnipeg in early 1919. And then after this, life kind of continues to truck along. People brush it aside. Yeah. I guess it's, like, one of those, like, crazy things that happens. Crazy things that happened right after the war. I don't know. We don't need to address this anymore. Yeah. Um, So what comes along next, sort of notably, 
is the Western Labor Conference hmm. in March of 1919. I assume you've heard of this. Um, like, yes, but it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. It's not always something I would cover when I would talk about the strike yeah. publicly so much, because it's, like, a whole other thing to get into. Um, so, Helen Armstrong is approved to go uh, by the Labor Council to go as a delegate, alongside her husband, of course, because mm-hmm. they mostly went to these things yeah. as this, like, very cool union power couple. <laughs> Uh, so there are 239 delegates going to Calgary for this sort of conference on the state of Western labor. 40 of them are from Manitoba, and the mood is bad. Right. I don't know if there's a whole lot of wins to talk about coming out <laughs> of the past handful of years in this city. Yeah. Just everyone's dying. There are riots everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's mad. The loaves of bread are too small. Well, or too big. Or too big. <laughs> The makeup of the meeting is unsurprisingly mostly men. Mm-hmm. There are four female delegates yeah. of that 239. Wow. Um, this is the main point Helen Armstrong has at this meeting. George is there as well, and he talks about like actual carpentry union stuff. But mm-hmm. Helen Armstrong is there to lambast the unions for doing poor jobs of including women. Yeah. So her statement at one point is, Mr. Chairman, I would like to say one more reason which brought us from Winnipeg, which was to place before the men folks here how women have had to suffer because organizers up and down the country for the last 30 years, holding mass meetings and public meetings, never invited women workers. Consequently, on vital issues like conscription, the women were slaughtered. And regarding liquor, there had not, <laughs> they had enough whiskey there to have a free half bath for all of Winnipeg. <laughs> Now, these women, the capitalists provides the dope factories and the minister hands it out. The YWCA, they don't forget the women. They educate them so well that when the men vote, why the wives went out and voted against their own best interest. I want you men to go back and start their education and take... Oh, wait. I want you men to go back and start their education to them to take their place in the class struggle. It is your own fault you have been crucified. Hmm. I have no sympathy for you. Wow. I know. It keeps going. Okay. I have sat in meetings hundreds of times, the only woman. The only woman. Hmm. I happen to have a labor skate for a dad. That's how I'm here. But I tell you, it is up to you to get it together, to get out and let, and instead of letting them stay home and sew and perform work of that kind all the time, let them come to the meetings and listen to the labor organizers and socialists. Mm-hmm. Of the Women's Labor League, I would like to take the time, a few minutes, to let you know what the Women's Labor League is doing. A few of the things. When a strike of the men's organization is on, our women act as pickets. In times of strike, we raise funds for the boys on strike to pay strike pay. These are some of the things we do. The Women's Labor League also holds economic classes and invites the boys to come give talks. And these economic classes are educational. These are only a few of these things. And I want you to go on pushing along in regard to the cause. You must do that unless you want to keep getting in the neck the way that you do. <laughs> Jeez, That's her yeah. little speech. All right. Holds no punches. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, you know, she's right that yeah. it's, you know, women are workers too. Why aren't they at the meetings? Yeah. There was an earlier labor meeting at one point where she had asked that the men take care of their children yeah. so women could go. And wow. like, it was unclear how well that went. Yeah. Probably but, not well. But, probably not well. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just funny that she goes up there and is like, I have no sympathy for you. For yeah, how wild. This, right? Well, I mean, I don't even think that that's something a lot of these men would have considered that they no, ought right? to involve their wives in yeah. their labor activism. Why would my Why would my wife want to think about this? Yeah, she's busy with the family, I guess. Yeah. So hopefully, a few of them snapped out of it a little bit after that. Yeah, I don't know. So there's a lot of talk about like minimum wage and working hours at this, uh, which Helen Armstrong doesn't have a whole lot of like opinions on. She's pretty quiet for a lot of it. That or the search function of this is yeah. like a little wonky. 
thankfully uh the voice published all of it so you can actually like read the transcript oh, of the cool. meeting which is very fun it's how i got armstrong's quote nice but there's also talk now of the one big union again okay that's brought up by everyone in the western labor conference which is all workers joining together yeah uh so the canada like canada's one big union comes out of this meeting and then oh boy did the government not like that <laughs> <laughs> um so the delegates come home in april Mm-hmm. And then May rolls around. Things happen in May. So we know that there's, of course, a pretty big strike in 1919 in May, but there's others. Okay. Uh, in early May, Helen Armstrong organizes a strike of candy makers and confectionery workers in the city oh. as well. This happens uh, right before the general strike, like a couple days before, and it lasts a few hours. <laughs> I feel like if it had lasted longer, the Tribune would have had just a field day. Oh, can you imagine the jokes? The Tribune trumps? Uh, Nothing better. What a, what a loss to us all. Awful politics. Good puns. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we're on to the main event, which is the Winnipeg General Strike, which yeah. you'll talk about next episode, of yeah. course. But I thought I'd talk a bit about what Helen Armstrong was up to, because yeah. that's really where people know her from. It's, her it's role. hard. We're going to have overlap in these two episodes, and that's okay. But, but you know what I talked about now, so we can... Yeah. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Um. So, I thought I would change up how I talk about the strike. Okay. And I would borrow a passage from the book When the State Trembled. Our Which is also book. a good book. It's the best <laughs> book on the strike. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> um... Although they had a good idea of what was coming at 11 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, May 15, 1919, the upper classes looking down at Winnipeg streets from above felt a sudden vertigo. Winnipeg's entire street railway graded to a halt milk deliveries. Having been suspended and the pasteurization system shut off, a great stench arose as thousands of gallons of milk began to sour at railway stations and Crescent Creamery. Uh Delivery of bread ceased too. The flour mills shut down and bakeries stopped baking. The city's many single male and female renters could no longer step out, as was the habit to downtown restaurants for their meals. All restaurants were closed. In this, the hottest May for 40 years. The thermostat was shooting up to 95 Fahrenheit, that's 36 Celsius. No one could get ice to keep food cold, except a select few who owned cars and struggled to haul their own ice. Mm. Even the water supply was limited, rationed to 30 pounds of pressure enough to do the cooking and washing in the first story of a house. Working class workers mostly inhabited little one-story homes. But no higher. Industry languished, as did the wealthy in their three-story homes, as did those who lived in the upper floors of the city's fashionable apartments. Hmm. So, yeah, it must have been, like, a weird feeling to yeah. watch the city halt like that. There's 30,000 workers on strike, unionized and non-unionized. Um, R.B. Russell estimated that with um, an average three-person family, there were uh, the strikers were representing about 100,000 people, give or take. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's insane. So this is, like, a lot to manage. Obviously, that's a yeah. ton of people. That's way more than last time we had this, yeah. um, which is only a year ago right. <laughs> that there was a similar strike. I think, it, you know, it probably would have felt a little bit like the first days of COVID, you know, when su- everything was suddenly gone. Yeah. And, yeah, you couldn't go to a restaurant. You couldn't. Totally. You know, at least we had water pressure, though. Yeah. Yeah. Although, also, like, probably the people in the one-story homes were like, well, we can do what we need to. Yeah. But if you want to have a bath on the third floor of your mansion, not tough luck. So to oversee the operations of the strike, the Winnipeg Trades and Labor Council formed the General Strike Committee and the Central Strike Committee. Mm -hmm. The General Strike Committee is made up of elected members of Winnipeg's 95 unions who vote on strike activities. And then they have an appointed executive that's smaller. 
There's a photo of about 50 members of the strike committee. You can see people like um, A.A. Heaps, William Ivins, John Queen, R.B. Russell, mm-hmm. R.I. Johns, George Armstrong, Robert Bray, William Pritchard. All familiar names, all of whom were arrested at the end of the strike. Yeah. Um, most of the men were involved in the anti-conscription stuff or involved hmm. in that December 1918 meeting. Yeah. That December 1918 meeting is actually the cause for some of these men being arrested in the first place. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Um, there are two women on the committee, Helen Armstrong and mm-hmm. someone that we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might be Rachel Logan. Okay. Interesting. I feel like I've seen a couple different guesses as to who yeah. it might be. The guess I had heard was that, uh, Rachel was the wife of William H.C. Logan, who's okay. the strike committee chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Winnipeg Telegram lists her as a member of the strike committee. Okay, yeah. So, like, maybe it's... a it's, pretty good guess, then, It's maybe, a pretty but, good yeah. guess, but, like, there's no way to know. Yeah. But Helen Armstrong takes a spot on this committee, and she actually has her own office in the James Street Labor Temple mm. during this. It's a uh, room 23, and she's, again, the head of the Women's Labor League. She's <laughs> back course. at it. She she's couldn't back. stay away. Yeah. And they managed to actually describe her office in The Voice, so oh, we know what it that. looks like. Okay. The office is a bare little room overlooking James Street, it is strewn with papers decorated with union charters and cauldrons and furnished with a desk, a little table, and plain wooden chairs arranged along the wall. The large desk and chair was unoccupied yesterday morning as Mrs. Armstrong had a case at the police court. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we get into what Helen was doing during the strike. Yeah. Which was mostly, well, getting arrested was part of it. Yeah. She got arrested a few <laughs> mostly times. Mostly getting arrested. <laughs> no, she was pretty instrumental in organizing um, women during the strike. Yeah. So stuff like pickets and blockades of stores and delivery wagon routes. There were these stories that women in Weston and uh, Brooklyn's areas being like famously violent to delivery trucks. Right. Like tipping them over and yeah. stealing the wheels and running away. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty good. Oh, man. So she also helps operate the Labor Cafe, mm-hmm. which bounces around a bit during the strike due to various disputes with, like, different sure. restaurants. But the Labor Cafe is instrumental in keeping strikers fed. Yeah. And it's run by volunteers with donated food or cash donations. They also uh, keep a rent donation pool to prevent strikers from losing their homes. Yeah. A lot of the stuff was focused on women. So, like, yeah. women could eat at these cafes for free. But if you could afford to as a man, you were expected to donate. Right. Because women were obviously having a harder time of making an income than some of the men were. Sure. And I, I imagine also, like, if you're being paid less than a living wage, probably had less in savings, for instance. Also, union men get strike pay. Yeah. Non-unionized people do not get strike pay. Good point. Yeah. So, that's fine. She doesn't really get in trouble for the labor cafe, and that's not yeah. really what she was known no, for. You're, for you're allowed to feed people. You're allowed to feed people. Um, It's the blockadings in the pickets okay. that get her in trouble. Uh, twice she's arrested for encouraging women to commit indictable acts. Okay. This is notably attacking scab laborers. Okay. Oh, no. So the first comes on June 6th after uh, Ida Krantz and Myrit Steinher come across two women working as newsies for the Winnipeg Tribune. The Tribune newsies are on strike. They've hired scabs to fill in mm. and Krantz and Steinhauer grab the women and tear up their newspapers. <gasps> they are arrested. Yeah. And Armstrong was as well for encouraging it. <laughs> In the tone of what all... a bad influence. That's the tone is that <laughs> Helen Armstrong is a corrupting influence on in these sweet young women who would never do anything like this if left to their own devices. Um, one of the Winnipeg Telegram strike editions straight up say that Helen Armstrong is deluding women and girls. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Krantz and Steinhauer are tried by Hugh McDonald. Oh wow. Of Dalnavert fame, who was <laughs> a judge at the time. Yeah. Um, he finds them five dollars because they're young. Yeah. And it's unclear how young they were. 
They've got a very funny. I, okay, I love Dalnavert, but they've got a very funny sign up in their place about right, yes. the strike right now, <laughs> yeah. uh, which says it's something like, you know, at Dalnavert, Hugh John McDonald was known as like a kind and generous right, but man outside of the but house. during the strike <laughs> and sort of all the all the stuff he did. Yeah, there. it's funny how your values and your personality changes. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I understand why they wrote it that way. It was yeah. just I saw it and it made me laugh. It's a funny way of phrasing it. Yeah. But yeah. I can see why you'd have to try and, like, you're, yeah. str- like straddle you're that You're literally line. in his house. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so both of the women claim that Helen Armstrong had told them to go out and take papers from the scabs through any means necessary. Armstrong's case keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back throughout all of June. But she does spend a night in jail before being uh, released on bail. Okay. Her bail is four grand. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you know how much that would be now? No, but I can quickly A lot of money. <laughs> Oh boy, it's a lot. Uh, it's close to seventy thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Oh my god. Yeah. I would I would be in in jail forever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, bail is raised for Helen Armstrong. She gets wow. out. Oh okay. So you can focus on like a lot of stuff during the strike, and it would be interesting. There's so many different moving parts. Helen Armstrong is just yeah. this one little component of it, yeah. and like even after the strike, she goes around and talks about what the strike was like in other Canadian cities. Sure. She fundraise for the bail fund of the arrested strike leader she goes and sings labor songs that's outside of the my, jail like didn't she like bring children with she her she brought children yeah. she did a field trip to go to the things and, that, to, and then like her husband george is arrested obviously yeah in late june which i'm sure you'll talk about the arrest at some point in your episode probably if not we'll talk about it yeah um the night her husband is arrested she calls the chief of police and just yells at him <laughs> all night yeah and then george gets out of prison a couple of months later or like two years later, how long is he in jail for? I don't know. It's a while. Yeah. Regardless, uh, George gets out of jail and comes home, and she's like, "You can't come into the house until you burn your clothes. I don't want your gross prison clothes in my home, <laughs> so I have to burn them in the yard, and then I get to go inside." Oh man, that's pretty good. So, um, the thing to note here is that uh, labor isn't perfect at the time. They've got some contemporary ideals of race. That don't hold up so well today, and I'm teeing Alex up yes. a bit for a peek into what our next episode is going to be. Okay, good, because I was worried. I was like, no, Sabrina, stop. That's my next episode. <laughs> no, I would never take that away from yeah. you. <laughs> no, totally. Um, we'll talk a lot about like the kind of exclusionary nature of the labor movement yeah. in, in our next episode. But though also you talked about that a lot here, right, in terms yeah. of like excluding women. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it would be worthwhile to bring up sort of the steps to 1919, the yeah. people that were involved and how they sort of trucked through all of the way. Like, 1919's not a bubble. The people don't come out of nowhere. Absolutely. People like Helen Armstrong had been fighting for years mm-hmm. for equal rights and minimum yeah. wage, and her father had been fighting for years before that. So yeah, it's a long struggle. It's a long story. And yeah, uh, I'm happy you're going to join us for this uh, tale through... A very, very busy period. Yeah, of like, I mean, we've only talked about like three years, too. Yeah, it's not long. I had to cut out chunks yeah. of before 1917. Wow. I started being like, oh, we'll start when the war starts. That'll yeah. be fun. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, so the next episode will be, I guess, kind of uh, like our strike episode, but it'll be about a-, a lot of other things, too. Yeah, it'll be good. I'm really excited for yeah. it. I think it'll be a fun a fun sort of strike take that we haven't done yet. Yeah, for sure. We've talked about the strike so much, so it's always when we have to be like, we're going to change it up a little. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening. Uh, 
Thank you so much to the Winnipeg Free Press and the Manitoba Historical Society for their support. They've been great in helping us out. If you mm-hmm. want to uh, read a little write-up for uh, this episode, that'll be in the Winnipeg Free Press. You can check us out on social media at Facebook and Instagram at One Great History and Twitter at the number one Great History. If you want to see sources or pictures or anything like that, you can visit our website, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. And we are on Patreon if you'd like to support the show and all of our hard work. And here's some fun bonus content as well. So you can visit that at patreon.com forward slash onegreathistory. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.